0: If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Philippians, there in the New Testament, Philippians into chapter two. We're gonna continue our sermon series that I have entitled, Who Are We? We've been asking that question, we've been trying to examine it, to figure out who exactly we are here at Ivy Creek, and we've we've kind of got this this statement that describes who we are. If you know it, say it with me. We are a you-all, gospel-first, servant-hearted family of believers that want our lives to count for the glory of God. Some of you got it down Now I see that out there. The rest of you you're going to learn it before it's all said and done because we're going to keep repeating it. that's who we are. We've been working through that statement as we've also been working through the book of Philippians to kind of see who we are. We reverse engineer again if you would, looking at each individual phrase that's there and descriptive, uh, term that's in that, that, that sentence so that we know who we are and we're getting it from our study of Philippians. And this morning we come to that third descriptor. We've already looked at what it means to be you all. We've looked at what it means to be gospel first. Now we're going to look at today what it means to be a servant-hearted family. Now you know over the years I have read a number of books on leadership. Uh, a lot of those books have, have kind of focused on church leadership, but I've also read outside of that to, to what leadership is in general out in, in, in other ways and, and how that leadership is described. And, and one of the things that I've noticed in, in reading through a bunch of leadership material through the years is that oftentimes that material tends to focus on the externals. It, it tends to have an emphasis on, on the things that a leader does. And, and it seems as though to me that a lot of leadership material stresses that a person can become a better leader simply by, by changing some things on the outside. Now... Don't get me wrong, I, I think that there are a lot of times when if you know something's broken and it needs to be fixed, the thing to do is to go fix it. And if as a leader there's some, there's some uh, holes in your ability to, to, to lead, you need to make sure that those holes are filled quickly, and especially if they are things that affect other people in a negative way. But I've also wondered, though, if in some cases that there is an overemphasis on a leader's external actions that ultimately leaves the heart of a leader untouched. You see, the reason that I wonder about that is because of what I read in Scripture. In fact, I recognize that, that according to Scripture, the emphasis that we find as we read from, from Genesis to Revelation is that the emphasis that is placed upon not just leadership, but about li- living, living the, the godly life, is one that, that addresses a person's heart before it addresses their actions. An example of that comes from the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel, we we read that that God went to the prophet Samuel and said, I want you to go and anoint Israel's next king. But when you go to find him, I don't want you to do what most people do, and that is look at all the things that are on the outside, looking at all the things that he's done in his past, looking at all the things that, that, that would impress you. In fact, God said, that's not the way that I want you to go about discerning who the next leader of Israel is going to be. This is actually what I want you to do. According to 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord told him, the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so the scriptures go on to recall that that the Lord chose David to be Israel's next king. And David was the youngest of his father's sons. David was the one who really didn't have a resume, much to look at at the moment. He was the youngest of his father's sons. He was the one who tended the sheep out out in the the, the fields and and, and all out in 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 the woods and all those places. He was the one actually on the day that Samuel anointed him to be king. David was the one that his dad forgot about until the very last minute. Nevertheless, the Lord chose David and he would be the one described in scripture as a man after God's own heart. Now, I believe that story impresses upon us the recognition that leadership does not begin with position. It does not begin with prestige. It does not begin with a place of power. Nor does it begin primarily by assessing people's actions. Rather, to be the kind of leader that God uses, the kind of leader that is effective, well, I believe it all starts with the heart. As Ken Blanchard has written in his book entitled Lead Like Jesus, he says effective leadership starts on the inside. It's a heart issue. And I believe that the same can be said for Christians. The same can be said for every believer Every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, in order for us to live an effective, productive, God-honoring life, well, it all starts with the inside. It all starts and it begins with the heart. Certainly, we have already seen that as we have been working our way through the book of Philippians to this point. The Apostle Paul has been focusing on heart issues all along. He is He's told these Philippian believers things like this. He said that you need to be like-minded. You need to, be, you need to have the same love. You need to be of one accord. You need to be of one mind with each other. And obviously what Paul is doing is he's turning their attention inward. He's having them focus on what I would call the motor that actually drives them to do the things that they are supposed to do. And, and sometimes Scripture refers to that as the mind. Sometimes, as it is with David, it refers to it as the heart. But in either case, what it refers to is something that happens inside of us first that then works its way to how we live on the outside. Consequently, what we hear Paul instructing the Philippians in things like he did back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says that they are to do nothing out of selfish ambition. They're to do nothing out of conceit, but in lowliness of mind, they should esteem others better than themselves. And they should look out not only for their own interests, but for the interests of others. And what Paul's instruction indicates is that a godly attitude and a godly lifestyle is not self-motivated. It's others motivated. It's a lifestyle that is motivated by heart that seeks the interests of others first. And to prove his point... Paul instructed those believers that they were to be like Christ. And that's where you get to in the middle part of this chapter. In fact, Paul tells them that they were to have the same mind that Christ had, who though he was God and existed as God for all eternity past. Didn't consider it robbery. He didn't consider that, that position of power that was rightfully his as something to be clutched and held on to at all costs. No, he gave that up, came to earth as a man, and died a cruel death on a Roman cross that he might serve us. You see, our interests were put ahead of his own. And he did that so that you and I might be saved from our sins and offered everlasting life. Now, Paul tells us that so that we can behold the beauty of the gospel. And listen, it is a beautiful picture of understanding who Jesus was prior to coming to earth and all that he went to in in doing and accomplishing our salvation. It is a beautiful picture that brings and presents to us the gospel message. But in the context of Philippians 2, I want you to recognize that Paul is giving us this example so that he can tell us that we are to have the same mindset that Jesus had. We are to have a servant-hearted focus. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to take some time to consider what it means to cultivate a servant's heart. So to do that, I want us to begin reading where we left off last week in verse 18 and pick up in verse 19 and read down through the end of the chapter. So begin reading with me there. Paul writes this, But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. and We thank you for this opportunity that lies before us this morning to open your holy word and to be able to read it and examine it and then to apply it to our own lives and that is a holy event it's not something that we ought to take lightly we ought to go into this moment reverently and expecting to hear from you so we pray that your holy spirit would speak to us and drive out all the distractions that we bring into this place from what's happened the week before or what's happening this afternoon or what's happening in the week upcoming. for this short while that we have together let us tune our hearts together as we hear from the Holy Spirit speak to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I believe that all scripture, as Paul states in 2 Timothy 3.16, is inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instruction and righteousness. I believe that with all of my heart. But I will also say that I also recognize that not all scripture is as inspiring to read as other parts of scripture. And I think we have an example of that right in front of us. You get to the middle of chapter two of Philippians, man, you're reading about how Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and took on the form of a bondservant, but God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That is some of the most beautiful inspiring passage of scriptures that you'll ever read. But then you come to the passage that I just read for you, the two paragraphs that I just read. And one, one uh, commentator that I read this week put it this way. He said that after the theologically rich language prevalent in the first half of chapter two, we might be surprised to suddenly encounter two paragraphs whose primary concern seems to be the travel plans of Paul and his co workers. Another commentator put it this way. He says that on, he says that, uh, on the surface, this passage looks like mo- little more than a travel itinerary and a statement of diary plans. Totally inspired words, just not all that inspiring. But I somewhat think that maybe if we look at these words a little more deeply and consider them in light of everything that's told to us on the front part, of Philippians, and particularly in chapter 2, I think that it brings a new hue, a new new tone to what these words actually can be and the, the beauty that actually is there. Paul here is deliberately speaking of the travel plans of both Timothy and Epaphroditus, but he's doing that as a way of teaching the Philippian church through the deep truths that he's already laid out for them. In other words, discussing their itineraries and and the plans that they're making, well, he is using these two men to show the Philippian believers what it means to have the mind of Christ that he's described for them. And to not only that, but to live a life worthy of the gospel. Those are the things that Paul has has encouraged the Philippian believers to do, to, to have that mind of Jesus and to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are held up as examples to show these Philippian believers how they should live. Because these two men had, had cultivated within themselves a servant's heart. As Paul commends them to the believers there in Philippi, they are examples worthy of following. In fact, that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence. I'm, I'm kind of switching things up a little bit this week. I'm going to give it to you up front. It's very simply stated, but my sermon in a sentence is just simply this. Members of a you-all gospel-first family of believers will seek to cultivate servants' hearts. That's what we'll do based upon what we're going to test, test the Scriptures for with this morning. Now, the question that I think comes to the... The forefront is just simply this. What does it mean to be servant-hearted? What does it look like when we cultivate a servant's heart? Well, notice the first point that I have given you there on your outline. It's just this. A servant's heart will be centered upon the things of Christ. A servant's heart will be centered upon the things of Christ. Now, before we even look at the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, I want you to notice the the choice of words that Paul uses in writing what he does, because I believe even there we see that Paul is showing forth an example for us of what it means to have his heart centered on the things of Christ. Look at verse 19. Paul tells the Philippian church there that he trusts in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to them shortly. Later, down in verse 24, speaking uh, of his own eventual travel back to Philippi, Paul says, I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. I mentioned to you last week that theology hangs upon prepositions. I want you to know you get even more when you add the prepositional phrase in there. And you have two prepositional phrases there saying the same thing, that their trust, Paul's trust, was in the Lord Jesus. That tells you, where his trust was located and who it was located in, in the Lord Jesus. Paul's declaration in these two verses is significant because what he's saying is, look, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my own ingenuity. I'm not trusting in my ability to make good decisions. My trust is in the Lord Jesus, and I'm waiting on him to tell me exactly what I need to do. I'm trusting that he is going to reveal to me his will. Paul had stated in the introduction to the letter of Philippians that both he and Timothy were bond servants, that they were slaves of Jesus Christ. So Paul's simple declaration here is that as a servant of Christ, he was not in charge of his own life. He wasn't the one that got to make all of his own decisions. Rather, Christ was in charge. And so that, that phrase there, in the Lord, that tells us who, was, who the one who was operating and and was moving Paul to do what he did. Notice also that when Paul writes to the Philippians and tells them that Epaphroditus had been deathly ill, I don't know if you picked up on that toward the end. Epaphroditus had been ill. Notice what he didn't say. He says, man, it's a good thing that O.E. got better. Boy, he sure was lucky. And I tell you, all you people back in Philippi, y'all need to thank your lucky stars that that Epaphroditus got well, and and I'm thanking my lucky stars that Epaphroditus got well. You, You didn't hear that. With what Paul wrote, because Paul, Paul didn't believe that what happened with Epaphroditus was based upon luck. He didn't believe that it was random chance that Epaphroditus got better. No. Notice what he says in verse 27. God had mercy on Epaphroditus and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul recognized that Epaphroditus's health that had returned to him, it did not come back by random chance. Rather, it was the sovereign hand of God who worked to heal him. Paul, as he consistently does throughout Scripture, demonstrates through the very words that he uses that his heart is centered upon Christ. He recognizes that Jesus is the one who drives the way he lives, and his understanding is that there's a sovereign God who stands behind everything that occurs. But we also see that demonstrated in what we learn about Timothy. Notice in verse 21, Paul says that unlike many of the others who surrounded him, Timothy had a heart for the things which are of Christ Jesus. And in verse 22, Paul commends Timothy's proven character by stating that he had served Paul in the gospel. In other words, Christ and his gospel were of utmost importance and at the center of Timothy's life. Brothers and sisters, let me say this to you. A a servant's heart will always, always be centered on the things of Christ. That was true of Epaphroditus as well. We know very little about him. What we learn about Epaphroditus, largely we learn from, from this text and what we know is that he had volunteered to take a sum of money that the Philippian church had, had took up in order to send to Paul. Paul was in Rome. He was incarcerated at the time for preaching the gospel. And so the money came to him in order to assist him, not just with his living expenses, but to assist him in continuing the ministry that he, was, he had there in Rome, even as, even as a prisoner. Now, remember, there was no Western Union in those days. There were no electronic funds transfer. Things got from one place to the other the old-fashioned way. With with a courier, with with someone, a runner, who was to take something. Somebody's even called him a, a gopher. Someone who takes something and goes for someone else and does that, a gopher. Somebody's called Epaphroditus, though, a gospel gopher. Because he was involved in taking money to Paul that helped the gospel to continue to go forth into this part of the world. Now, you know, sometimes some of the responsibilities that, that fall such as this. To be a courier, there's not a lot of excitement about being a courier, is there? I mean, it looks rather mundane and even boring. But I want you to make no mistake about it. What Epaphroditus did was absolutely crucial for the continued advancement of the gospel. In fact, Paul, notice he just heaps praise upon praise upon Epaphroditus. In verse 25, he calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. And then he says he is one who ministered to my need. Do not miss that. Paul says that this guy who came from Philippi all the way to Rome was a minister of the gospel. You know, a lot of times we talk about the ministry. And many people think that the only people who are really doing the ministry are the folks like me that stand behind the sacred desk and preach the gospel. And listen, that is a part of ministry. But I want you to know there are countless people that are involved in ministry all the time that are doing things behind the scenes that many folks never see. They don't get to see a lot of what takes place. But I would tell you without any hesitation whatsoever that the ministry of the gospel goes forth in a lot of these unsung and unseen places where people just like you decide, you know what, I'm going to do what God gives me the opportunity to do. I'm going to serve him in the area that he gives me to serve. And there may not be a lot of people who see it and know about it, but because I am a believer in Christ and I want the gospel to go forward, I'm submitting myself to him and will serve anywhere he tells me to go. That's exactly what Epaphroditus did. There's an important distinction to note. I think when we recognize just what service is all about, You know, it's it's even reiterated for us down in verse 30. Paul Paul reiterates the fact that Epaphroditus served and ministered to him, but then he makes sure that the Philippian believers recognize that Epaphroditus' heart was focused on Christ. He says, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Listen, brothers and sisters. That is what members of a you-all gospel-first family of believers must do. We must partner with others to go and whatever lengths it takes, to go to whatever lengths we should that are necessary to ensure that the work of the gospel is carried out unhindered. We must be people who are centering our hearts on the things of Christ. But then notice the second point that I want you to see. If we're going to cultivate a servant's heart, the second thing that I want you to note This morning is this, is that a servant's heart will put the interests of others ahead of their own for the sake of Christ. A servant's heart will put the interests of others ahead of their own for the sake of Christ. Remember, those were the instructions that Paul had already given to this church in Philippi back in verse 4. And from the number of times that Paul repeats it, it gives me indication that that was the, one of the big things that the people in Philippi were struggling with the most. You know, if you just say it one time, you're, 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 you're giving notice to it. If you say it twice, you're kind of emphasizing it. When my daddy would have to tell me something three times, I knew something else was coming after that. But that was because there was a problem that needed to be corrected. And I think there was a problem here in Philippi that... That needed to be corrected. There they were groups that just weren't willing to put the interests of others ahead of their own. And that's why you see Paul come back to this subject over and over again. And so he's telling the here, look, let me show you Timothy. And let me show you Epaphroditus. Because here's two examples that will show you how you ought to pattern your life. Here's two leaders that you ought to see how they lead and then you follow Consider what Paul says of Timothy there in verses 20 and 21. He says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. In describing Timothy, Paul says that he genuinely cared about the welfare of the Philippians. In fact, that was the quality in Timothy that the church in Philippi needed not only to note, but to follow. And to, and to model their own lives after. Unfortunately, it was a quality that not everybody had. In fact, Paul claims that everyone else sought their own interests. Everyone else was intent on putting themselves first. That's not the way of someone seeking to cultivate a servant's heart. A servant's heart first and foremost will be centered on Jesus. And then, and then when that happens, your interests will take a back seat to the interests of others. Verse 21 is, is, is vital because it shows how this works. Notice that it is Timothy's loving concern for the interest of Jesus that actually energizes. It's the motor that then begins him to show loving concern and interest toward others. What that means is that when you truly love Christ, you'll love his people. You'll love his church too. Sometimes I hear people say that they love Jesus, but they just don't care much for The church. Well, what I want you to know is based upon what we see here, Timothy's love for Christ actually manifested itself in a true love and a true concern for the church, for the body of believers that Jesus Christ gave his life in order to save. And I want you to know that is a pattern that repeats itself throughout the New Testament. You see it over and over and over again when my heart is tuned to the one who saved me and loved me and gave himself for me, I will then also love and be in tune with those that are like me in that regard. Now, right about here, you may be thinking, but wait a minute, what about that, that statement that Paul makes there in verse 23, where he says that he'll send Timothy to them, but only after he sees what's going on with him first. Now, isn't that, isn't that Paul kind of putting his own interests ahead of the Philippian believers? Well, consider this. Paul is in prison when he's writing this. And and Timothy is there to serve him, yes. And yes, the the Philippian believers would do well to have Timothy back among them so that he could instruct them directly and be able to minister to them directly. But also note this. Note that Paul is still not sure whether he's going to be released from prison or not. He, He believes he is. He thinks he's going to be released and he's going to go back to Philippi. But there still at this point remains the question as to whether that is actually going to occur. And so as long as that question hung out there, Paul says, I'm going to keep him here with me. Because if my life is forfeit and if I am killed because of preaching the gospel, I will have Timothy here to continue on in the ministry that has begun here in Rome. It was a strategic move. It was not a selfish move on Paul's part. But notice what, notice what Paul did do. He says, I am going to send Epaphroditus to you. Now, it would have been just if, if Paul was simply doing it from selfish motives, he could have kept Epaphroditus as well, but he didn't. He sent him back in order for him, for him to be able to minister to the church there. Paul, I believe, would have been ready to give up anything and all resources necessary in order to ensure that the gospel was advanced and that Jesus Christ was glorified. And here's something else that bears to be understood from this passage. And that is when the things of Christ become central to you and you begin to put the interests of others ahead of your own, it's going to cause hardship. It's not, it's not, there's not integrity if I tell you that following Jesus does not also create hardship and trouble. Oftentimes in in life. Our main example of this is Jesus himself. Who, who left heaven's glory to come to earth to serve. And what did that cost him? It cost him his very life. He gave his life in exchange for mine and for yours, but make no mistake about it, that was hard. And it was, it was great peril to which he came. What I want you to understand is that the same can be said for all who place their faith in Christ and choose to follow him. Jesus himself said that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If I went through trouble, you too are going to go through trouble. Serving the Lord and serving others is an intense, often physically and emotionally draining experience. And I believe Epaphroditus understood that, Timothy understood it, Paul understood it, and certainly the Lord Jesus understood that. So in presenting not only Christ's example, but also the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul has attempted to show us what a servant's heart looks like. And what he has told us is that a servant's heart is one that will be centered on the things of Christ and that a servant's heart will put the interests of others ahead of his own for the sake of Christ. The question is, how do we apply that to our own lives? Well, in light, of, in light of what this passage teaches us, if, if as part of this you all gospel first family, we are going to become servant-hearted, we're gonna be a servant-hearted family, if we're gonna cultivate a servant's heart then I think we've got to be willing to go wherever God leads us and do whatever God desires for us to do. I think the examples before us tell us that. One who recognizes himself or herself to be a servant of Christ will recognize that he or she doesn't call the shots in their life. Instead, we will recognize that the Lord Jesus is the one who governs our agenda. That is what it means for him to be Lord of our lives. He is the one who rules over our lives and determines what we will do. I once read the testimony of a man who recalled that as a teenager, he was hesitant to pray the prayer, Lord, send me wherever you want me to go. I'm willing to go wherever you send me. He was hesitant to pray that because he was afraid that God might actually do that and might actually send him to some place on the other side of the world to become a missionary. And he says, I didn't want to do that. And so I was afraid to pray it. But then then it was the Holy Spirit began to work him and said, but if, if I truly understand that God loves me, if I know that he loves me and that he sent his son Jesus to die for me and that because of that, then his love for me can never be diminished by, by anything that I do and, and that if, if he desires to send me to some other place in some other part of the world to minister on his behalf, then I would be stupid. That was his words, not mine. But I think they're apropos. I would be stupid to stay here to serve only people that look like me. Brothers and sisters, a servant's heart will be willing to be sent anywhere and serve anyone and it will also be willing to sacrifice anything. It will sacrifice the comforts of home. It will sacrifice financial security. It will sacrifice holiday plans. It will sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. You see, when Christ comes first and the interests of others jump to the forefront of your own, suddenly the things that you and I are so tempted to clutch and hold on to and hold dear to our lives will be sacrificed for the sake of Christ. The Apostle Paul said this of his own ministry in Acts 20 verse 24. He says, I do not count my life dear to myself in order that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not count my own life dear to myself. Cultivating a servant's heart will mean being willing to give up everything. your desires, your ambitions, your comforts, your time, your money, all so that you can fully and completely serve Christ. And I think it also means that you will love other people passionately. Paul loved the church passionately. He loved these people in Philippi with a tremendous passion. You can even see that from Timothy and from Epaphroditus. And listen, loving someone means that you enter into both their joys and their sorrows. There are faces all across this room that I can think of the many times that I have entered into the joys of your life with you, celebrated wonderful moments, times that you didn't see coming, and all of a sudden it was there, and it was just wonderful, and we were able to rejoice and cry tears of joy with, but there are many across this room that I've been with you when you've not experienced the greatest times, and you've gone through sorrow. I want you to know when you love people passionately, you walk through both with them. And when you walk through both with them, you are not unaffected by what happens. That's what it means to love passionately. And as a people, that is what we are to do with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. When they come before us and and we present them up here, we are presenting them to you as part of your family. Why? Because that's what family does. Family walks together through the good times and the bad times. We lock arms with one another and we love each other passionately. That is who we're called to be here at Ivy Creek. And I want you to hear this. Cultivating a servant's heart will also necessitate cooperation and partnership. Paul described Epaphroditus as a brother and a fellow worker and a fellow minister. He, often, he even says down there, he's a son as who is serving with a father. You see that? There was no generation gap in that church. The father and the sons were serving right there together. They didn't have opposite goals and opposite agendas. No, they had one agenda. The cause of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. And cultivating a servant's heart will cooperate fully with others for the cause of Christ. And so, by way of application, let me ask you this question. Are you someone who is willing to be sent anywhere, serve anyone, sacrifice anything, love passionately, and cooperate fully for the cause of Christ? Is that you? Can that be said of you? Brothers and sisters, that is what servant leadership, servant-hearted leadership looks like. And it's what we as a gospel first, a you-all gospel first family are called to be here at Ivy Creek. And the Lord willing, we're going to continue to flesh this book out as we go along over the next few weeks here's the question that's before us today. How are you doing with cultivating a servant's heart? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And that invitation is, is going to be a time for you to not only ask yourself that question, but, but for you to make a commitment to put the things of Christ first in your life. To commit yourself wholly and completely to him and to his service. For some of you, that may mean that for the very first time, you take a step of obedience by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus. The Bible tells us that all who will turn to God in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will find mercy and they will experience grace and the gift of eternal life. So, in just a moment, you're going to have the opportunity to To do that, Pastor Ted, Pastor Dave, myself will be up front. You just slip out right there where you are and come talk. There's not a person in this room that will think badly of you. There's not one person in this room that will look down upon you. In fact, there are people who are right now in another part of our church campus praying specifically for you and for this moment. And so I would invite you to come, and I would invite you to take one of our hands and be able to to pray with us and, and have the opportunity for us to explain to you fully what it means to be a follower of Christ. Maybe you're here and you've done that. And your testimony is is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but if you are completely honest, you don't possess a servant's heart. Perhaps in the time that we have studied this passage together this morning in this time of reflection, you recognize that your own pursuits and your own desires have taken precedence over the things of Christ and over the interests of others and if that is the case if the Holy Spirit has brought that to your attention this morning then then I would invite you to come as well we're going to have our time our altar is going to be open you're welcome to come just right now and just spend time before the Lord bow right here and bring the Bible tells us this all those who are willing to repent of their sins that the Lord Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us and unrighteousness. And so that opportunity is going to exist for you. A genuine love for Jesus will always manifest itself in a heart of service for the Lord's church. So as we enter into this time of reflection and response, I would simply say, allow the Holy Spirit to guide you as we take this time to pray. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for your goodness to us and we thank you for this day that you've given us. And we thank you for this word that when we open it up and we look at it that it serves as a mirror. And oftentimes when we look into that mirror we're confronted by what we see. Your word has the way of revealing that to us. And we have two choices. We can either turn away and not look at it anymore or we can we can begin to address the things that we see staring back at us. And you're a God that has always said, you will never turn us away when we come to you humbly and ask for your your help and for your forgiveness. And so I pray that we as a people this morning would stare into that which you have revealed to us and not turn away, but turn to you and to give our hearts completely and wholly to you. I pray these things, Lord, so that you might receive all the glory and all the honor in our lives. Help us truly to be a you-all gospel-first servant-hearted family here at Ivy Creek. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.